Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Can you hear that? We've just come on air and already the clock is ticking down against us. I've got so many notes in front of me, so many things to discuss with our panel. How are we going to fit it all in? That's the question. Niall Hatch is with me here in studio. Niall, how are you? I'm very good, Derek. Another busy show. We're ever yep. going to have a non-busy show. Yeah, well, because you see, the programme is sometimes 54 minutes long, 53 minutes long, 52 minutes long, and I just don't know what way it's going to turn out. So we just got to move, 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 and squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. We've got to speak as fast as we can. Aina Nilana, no better person at her home in Terra Aina. Hello, I can talk at the speed of light, as you know, and I get even more squeezed in if you want. <laughs> I think we should slow it down just a tad as we say goodnight to Dr. Richard Collins at his home in Malahide. Richard, one for you. We're going to be talking about dinosaur feathers in tonight's show. Oh, yes, dinosaur feathers. That's very interesting and extraordinary development to go for feathers among the dinosaurs because it connects the dinosaurs to birds. They are around us still. Dinosaurs and birds are all of a kind. And I'm sure Niall will have plenty to add to that a little bit later on. But, Aina, I want to start with you. Let's go back a couple of weeks ago when on air you managed to name all 101 bee species found in Ireland against the clock. It was incredible. Number 98, the furry-bellied blood bee. Number 99, the blunt-jawed nomad bee. Number 100, the ivy bee. And number 101, the hairy-footed flower bee. So, Ada, you were absolutely fantastic. Everybody's been texting in and calling in and shouting in and stopping me on the street, asking me, does she really know all 101 bee species or was it just a bit of magic on the radio? Well, of course I know all 101 species. What you see is what you get. But the last one, the hairy-footed flower bee, that really intrigued people and got their imagination going. This one was only discovered, you will remember, in 2023, earlier in the year, in Harold's Cross, in the parish next to where I am. But it was such a lovely name that you were thinking of a bee with hairy feet and a flower bee. You know, so this was a hairy-footed flower bee. Wonderful description. Up indeed, a wonderful and very interesting bee. And I know what I think is really remarkable about it, it wasn't found in a far-flung nature reserve. It was found in a Dublin suburb. It really is interesting. These could turn up anywhere. Yeah, this was actually, I went down to see it myself because it's it's just down the road from where I live. And it was it was actually the front of a row of houses where there was what other people might rudely describe as weeds, a whole lot of brassicas that had, had yellow flowers on them. And the, this bee was in and out of these. And the person who was kind of minding the flower beds was coming out to have a, a go at tidying it up. And when she saw this amazing bee, she, she was really intrigued. She knew it was something different and left it all there. And I mean, if that had been changed to children, or something like that it wouldn't have been there so it's also the importance of of leaving what comes up naturally the wild things which these things that were in the flower bed were so they're there in all pride of their place so we can't wait till next spring to see will the hairy footed flower bee come back because the male is quite different in looks to the female quite a different dimorphism there in fact but they were both using this flower bed as a courting area and meeting each other so it was great and next door to where I live imagine I find it fascinating that they're called flower bees because what kind of bee isn't a flower bee? You know, they're they're so associated with flowers. But I'm curious particularly, what is it about the hairy feet? Why do they need these hairy feet? Well, I expect the hairs on me, they say the hairs on their legs, certainly on the females, are what they have as pollen baskets and they bring the pollen back to the nest because, as you know, bees collect pollen to feed their young and then they collect nectar to, to make honey for themselves. And it's, it's amazing that in the 101 bees, this one is a flower bee, when, as you say, they all visit flowers, essentially, whether the flowers are catkins, indeed, or ones with petals on them, they're all flower bees, that's what they do. But that's why they have hairs, a lot of the the pollen baskets on the legs are specially adapted hairs that are able to carry the pollen. So I imagine this one has just particularly good ones. Or maybe they just decided this hadn't been an English name before and they would call it the hairy-footed one. Probably there are other ones that have hairs on their feet. This is not the only one, but this is the only one with that name. (laughs) Richard, you've got hairy feet. 
Well, I wouldn't say they're especially hairy. Hair is a very important thing, you know. Um, I, I wonder about it, uh, why we lost it so uh, readily. Probably so that we could cool down, rather, in the sun. And we ventured out when the other great apes couldn't because the sun and the heat of the day would be too much for them. But for us, to lose our hair was a great thing. We could go out in the midday sun. Mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. And our ancestors went out in the midday sun and exploit a niche that other things could not exploit. That's the theory. And we could sweat. Aha, that's the great thing. We could sweat. Perspiration would evaporate from our bodies and cool us down. Of course, there was a downside. We could be bitten by all kinds of creatures uh, and we were very vulnerable in many ways. But anyway, this, those are my initial thoughts about hair. Shave your toes, Richard. Now, Ada, you've got a book out and we'll be discussing it a little bit later on. What's it about? I have a book for children, it's called Wonders of the Wild and it's my first venture into books for children and I really enjoyed writing it and and it's lovely illustrations in it as well by Brian Fitzgerald. So it's out there, your Christmas presents are sorted. <laughs> we'll talk about it towards the end of the programme but Niall, as I put Aina on the spot a couple of weeks ago, I think it's only fair that we do it now with another expert and you are an ornithologist. So are you ready Niall? Are you sitting comfortably? Relatively so. The Relatively dirty chairs so. aren't great, but okay. We can give you a cream or anointment for that. But at any rate, bring down the lights if you would. Here we go. So the lights are down and the contestant is now sitting in the seat. Your name, please. Niall Gerard Augustine Hatch. Profession? Head of Communications and Development at Birdwatch Ireland. And your chosen subject? Birds of Ireland. Niall, can you tell me the last bird to be entered onto the Irish bird list? Yes. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> well, well, it's not as easy as you might think, Derek. I, um, so Ireland is a, a very interesting place for birds. We're at the crossroads of many migratory routes. We're the first port of call for birds that get blown across the Atlantic in storm systems. And there's a committee that monitors such things. You have the Irish Rare Bird Committee, and they make their pronouncements and deliberations when people submit records to them. There's a whole process. There's a provisional list, uh, and certain things are then pending acceptance. But the most recent bird to be added to the Irish list, which practice stands at 485, which is very high for a country of our size. The most recent was just last week. It's a bird called the Cape May Warbler, which mm. has just turned up. One was found on Ackle Island. Cape May is the southernmost point of New Jersey over in the United States. It's a famous migration point where a lot of birds would head across the, the narrow gap in the sea there to get across the state of Delaware when they're heading south. Cape May Warblers don't actually breed anywhere near there, um, but they were noted there many, many years ago in migration which is where the name came from. Uh, and uh, it's a bird that uh, after a big storm system they brought a lot of these American birds other species with exotic names like Tennessee Warbler and Baltimore Oriole and species like that a Cape May Warbler was found on Ackle Island so that What does it look like? It's actually a very pretty little bird um, I think that you know when we look at our European Warblers a lot of them look quite drab a lot of the North American Warblers are absolutely stunning it's almost the colours of a tiger it's gorgeous it's this lovely black white and orange blazing orange kind of bird and this was a particularly well coloured one a lot of the times when the juvenile birds turn up over here they're they're relatively drab compared to the adults in breeding plumage. This one is actually quite colourful. So beautiful looking creature. Tiny little sprite of a thing. To think that they can survive crossing the Atlantic, it's astonishing. And to think in those storm systems how many of the birds don't make it. The mm. vast majority must perish in the ocean. Get wiped out, yeah. To again. But it must be very lonely if it's ended up here in Ireland and doesn't speak the language, can't understand a word we're saying, etc, etc. It doesn't have any friends. Can it mate? Will it head back? What's going to happen to it? What happened to it? Where is it? Nobody knows. And that's the thing. Uh, what happens to these birds they seem, first when they come over, understandably they're obsessed with feeding. They are starving. They've travelled a long distance for many days without any food. They have to try and find as much food as possible, get back into sort of condition. And the thing, of course, is that their migratory instincts are still screaming at them. It's saying, head south, head south, head south. They don't realise they're on the wrong side of an ocean. Uh, and so the theory is that they probably then, after they fed up for a few days, they head south. The bird has since disappeared and uh, presumably is headed further south. It may turn up somewhere else, but the fact is it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. It may never be seen again. Uh, we 
we just don't know. Richard. Well, we can thank the hurricanes and the Atlantic for something. It's They're not all bad. They're bringing these things across. These little birds could never get across unless the winds carried them here, which they did. And I think the person who discovered this is no one other than Michal O'Brien, who was Young Scientist of the Year way back in 1967 or sometime like that. I, I may be wrong on that. Is that true, Niall? It is. Michal was indeed the gentleman who discovered the bird, uh, living out on Ackle Island at the moment, had an illustrious career in, in, uh, in Europe with the European Commission and uh, was heavily involved with, with Birdwatch Ireland as well many years ago too. So uh, a man with a, a long pedigree and track record of, of working with, with birds and with the environment and very fitting that he would find it and in such a beautiful part of the country as well. It's, 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 uh, it's amazing. And, and if you look at the geography of Ireland, Ackle Island is exactly the kind of place that you would expect birds like that to turn up. Places like the Mullet Peninsula as well, Loop Head, those headlands that are sticking out into the Atlantic Ocean. It's the first port of call for these exhausted, starving birds. They see a speck of land when they're in over the sea. They just manage to make it there and they often would stop off in the very first tree they find and just frantically look for food. So it seems that these tropical storm systems had brought quite a lot of these different species across. Uh, in, in, in Britain, particularly, where there's lots and lots of bird watchers, they're finding that uh, it's probably they're saying the best autumn on record for these North American vagrants that have accidentally crossed the Atlantic. And Wales, particularly, got quite a few, more than its usual fair share. So it would suggest that quite a few of these birds came south of Ireland and then up to that part of the Irish Sea and may have just missed County Wexford. And I always think as well, how many of them must be missed? There's lots of bird watchers in Ireland, of course, looking out for them in the autumn. Them, but they can't cover every bush on every headland and every island and there certainly must be species that, uh, that, that disappear. Um, have you ever come across any of those rare vagrants yourself, Richard, when you've been out birdwatching? No, I haven't come across them here, but on the East Coast we wouldn't do that well from those kind of things. But of course, the other way, the ones that come from Europe and from Africa and places like that, that's another matter. You do get the odd one of those coming this way when the winds are right. Yes, and we're the last port of call for a lot of those birds before they head out over the Atlantic or be forced <laughs> out there. So Ireland really does punch above its weight. And when you think that, as I was saying, it's 485 species currently recognised on, on the Irish list, species of bird, that is, that's really quite impressive. And anything could turn up, and they could, they could turn up almost anywhere. Um, like, Aina, you were saying there about the bees, it doesn't necessarily have to be in some far-flung nature reserve. It could be in a suburban garden. I find it quite amazing. Niall, are you going to name the whole 485 species of birds? After all, I was asked to name all the bees. I mean, I know the programme is busy, but you should get them all said in maybe 15 minutes. (laughs) OK, Niall, your clock starts now. (laughs) Number one, mute swan. Number two, hooper swan. Number three, Buick swan. Very clever, Niall. Did you spot that listener? He started with the swans. Not many species of swan in Ireland. He could have gone with the ducks. Maybe he would have tripped himself up there. Or he could have gone into the garden birds. (laughs) We know he would have got them all anyway. It doesn't matter. Anyway, one of the advantages of living in Ireland is that if we make a little bit of an effort, we could see a lot of the birds mentioned on the Irish bird list, particularly if we live near a parkland, because you can go in and there you can see a huge congregation of species, including the swans, the ducks and the garden birds. For me, it is certainly one of the reasons I love living in Dublin because I can do just that if I want to. But it's not the only reason. Dublin can be heaven With coffee at eleven and a stroll Through Stephen's Green There's no need to worry there's no need to hurry, you're the king And the ladies are queen Grafton Street's a wonderland There's magic in the air There's diamonds in the ladies' eyes And gold dust in her hair And if you don't believe me Come and meet me there In Dublin on a sunny summer's morning Oh, the beautiful voice of Aoife Scott. And if she sounds like one of the Black sisters, it's because she is the daughter of Frances Black and the niece of Mary Black. And I was a huge fan when I was a kid. But at any rate, I'm delighted to see the family tradition keeps going on. Beautiful singer and a beautiful rendition of that song. I mean, I could have been tempted to play no Purcell's version of it, but I think Aoife Scott has done it justice. Anyway, why are we playing it? It's because we're going to talk now about some of the advantages of living in Dublin city centre. Please don't get annoyed with this. You can 
text doesn't tell us some of the advantages of living where you live. But Terry Flanagan is at his home now in Dublin 15. Terry, and you want to tell us about some of the reasons from a natural history point of view that it's good to live in Dublin? Well, there are lots of advantages, Derek, for living in Dublin, and one of them for me is visiting the museums here in the city. Museums like the National Museum of Ireland or the Chester Beatty Museum or the National Print Museum. These are all free to the public and great places to visit. But my favourite, it's got to be the Natural History Museum. Now, the Natural History Museum is on Merrion Street, a wonderful Victorian building, a really compact place, overflowing with specimens. Pretty much every Irish border animal is there, not only those living today, but also some extinct ones. In fact, just as you step inside the front door, you're met with some wonderful specimens of giant Irish deer. I paid a visit recently and met with Paolo Viscardi, keeper of the museum, and he told me about the lives of these magnificent animals when they roamed the land here thousands of years ago. They come in the front door, Terry. Well, the first thing I can see are these two magnificent, not animals as such, but skeletons. Well, there's actually three here. You've got the the two males and the female. Yeah. Um, and the female is actually, in many ways, the more interesting one of them because they're so few female giant Irish deer. Yeah. Um, now that's what they are, they're giant Irish deer. They are giant Irish deer. Most of the specimens that you have here are animals that are stuffed and fish and insects but you do have these small number of skeletons and these ones they're really impressive. They are, these are pretty remarkable actually, they're, they're fairly complete, I mean, they're very complete actually because finding a complete giant Irish deer is quite unusual. You will often find bits, mm. a few pieces here, maybe a skull, maybe a few bits of a leg or something like that. You very, very rarely find the whole thing but um, certainly some of these specimens here were actually found you know, as you see them today. Sometimes with some damage which has been repaired and sometimes with bits missing which have been replaced but generally they were actually very, very intact. Looking at it, the first thing people will notice is that it's totally black. Has it been painted? It's not actually been painted but they would have prepared the bones and they would have coated them, probably um, heated them in a, in a, a vat of uh, some sort of substance, mm. all, all sorts of horrible things in it but as a way of uh, what we'd say consolidating the bone so it's about impregnating that bone with a kind of a waxy material which stops it from becoming flaky and fragile because over time as a bone degrades and becomes you know, a fossil as opposed to a piece of fresh bone the protein that's in the bone breaks down and it means that a lot of that flexibility that the protein offers is lost and so the mineral that's left behind uh, needs some kind of matrix to hold it together a bit more effectively and really that's what they were trying to do with these treatments on the bones and effectively it means that they've got this black coating on them but it actually that goes right into the bone. Mm -hmm. For anyone coming to the Natural History Museum for the first time it's a really impressive sight as soon as you walk in the door. They're huge you know people might think of the deer in the park the fallow deer in the park to put it in perspective, these ones here, they must be four or six times the size. Am I right? Probably not quite that much. I think it's easy to forget that, number one, they are standing on a plinth, um, which gives them a lot of extra height. And number two, they were mounted in a way which puts them very much on tippy-toes. So although they were absolutely huge animals, and they certainly would have been maybe three or four times the size of a fallow deer, they're not quite as huge as they look here. Yeah, but they don't have any muscle, they don't have any flesh, they don't have any intestines or so on, and the four. So that would have made them even bigger. Yeah, yeah, to a certain extent. And I think the main thing is that when you mount a skeleton and you mount it kind of to make it look as big as possible, your mind has to fill in all the blanks. It has to fill in all the gaps with all the extra bits that will be on there. And so you scale up accordingly. When you actually mount something with the muscles on and so on, so if you kind of reconstruct it in a more lifelike position, then you'll tend to find that it shrinks down quite a lot yeah. because as you add things like muscles and tendons, the way in which the limbs kind of co correspond, the, the way in which the bones sit, all changes. So... This style of mounting is very, very old. It's very historic. This is something which would be very, very common as a way of making these um, like already impressive, incredible animals look even bigger. But that was what happened in the day of the Natural History Museum because this is an old museum. It's not hands-on. There's no computer-generated, any of that kind of stuff here. It's just real animals. Yeah, and that absolute tangible kind of reality of the collection is 
part of what I love about the place. It's part yeah. of what our audience loves about the place. We don't really feel the need to have that this space full of computers and so on because... No, you just have these animals, and that's what does it for you. Looking at him again here, the most striking thing that I see are the antlers. How heavy would they be in real life? I know how heavy they are because I've had to wrangle them. Um, so actually, when we reopened the ground floor last year, we had to remount that skull there. Yeah. And because we weren't happy with the way in which it was attached, it was not as well attached as it should have been, in my opinion. So um, we brought someone in to mount it. And so we had to take the skull off and then we had to build. Uh, you might just be able to see, if we come around the back yeah, behind, okay, behind the specimen here and look up there, you see on the back of the skull, there's a kind of a, like, almost like a pair of handlebars yeah, um, it, yeah. made, of, made of steel. Yeah, it's um, not so part of the animal, you can It's say. not part of the animal. Um, so we installed those uh, to take the weight of those antlers because they weigh around 70, 75 kilos. So 70, 75 kilos in, in old money would be 11 or 12 stone. Yeah, yeah. And so that, that must have been very, very difficult for the animal to haul these around with them all the time. Like the fallow deer, going back to them, did they drop these or lose these antlers at certain times during the year? Yeah, absolutely. So they shed them um, after the rot. They will go through that process, they will do their breeding piece, and then those antlers will fall off because you would not want to be spending a winter having the extra effort yeah. of carrying those things around. Yeah. What do they feed on? Now, that's a good question, actually. We've had researchers coming in and looking at the material that's caught between the teeth of the giant deer. So that's actually a piece of work that happened fairly recently. So we're still waiting on the results from that. But it seems that they were browsing on um, kind of low vegetation. and. and mm. So they're definitely herbivores. Oh, they're definitely herbivores, absolutely. Uh, and the antlers then, apart from having them for sexual selection, they were also, I presume, there to defend the animal. They may have been used in defence as well, and you tend not to see too much of that um, with modern deer. There's a lot of um, animals which have you know, antlers or horns, and sometimes they will be used defensively, it does happen, but actually not as often as you might expect. It's one of those, those things that always perplexes me slightly mm. when you see a, a, a predator attacking a, a herbivore with a large set of antlers or horns and it doesn't turn around and attack. Mm. They tend to run away instead because I think that's just... The fight-or-flight response tends to be geared up towards flight in the case of most um, of the kind of things like deer and antelope and so on. What were their main predators? There probably would have been things like wolves. But this is a huge animal if we were to stand beside a wolf. Well, you'll find wolves will take things like moose as well. And when you actually compare the giant deer to something the size of a moose, they're actually fairly comparable. A moose is a huge animal. Now, why are they called Irish deer? Mainly because they're just loads of them found in Ireland. The first ones were described from Ireland, so that's kind of what set this whole species up was specimens from Ireland. And so as a result, they just were automatically associated with Ireland from the very, very beginning of and, our understanding of them. And where else can you find them? you find them all across Europe, and they actually probably went extinct here a bit sooner than they went in other parts of Europe. So here, I think the oldest ones would be about 11,000, maybe 10,000 years old. Whereas if you go into other parts of Europe, you'll find them from about 7,500 years ago. Why did they become extinct then? A combination of factors, most likely. So changing climate will be the major one. As you get the kind of ice ages and the interglacials, so the periods with ice and the periods which were much warmer, coming and going over Europe, uh, you get changing conditions, different vegetation, different competition from other animals, and also different predators, including humans. So all of these things coming together with a changing environment and changing pressures from different predators will have affected the population, but competition with other species would have been a massive factor as well. So there's no one main reason? No, no. Not that you can just put your finger on and say, oh, it was this. And actually, that's usually the case for most things. So when we today talk about things going extinct because of climate change, the climate change is one aspect, but actually... It will be the climate change plus you know, human intervention, changing farming practices, um, invasive species. There'll be a whole raft of different things which all come together, but there might be one thing beyond all of the others which is causing more pressure, and that will be the thing which is usually identified as the causing factor. But actually, usually it's a whole bunch of different environmental pressures which are causing the problem. Thank you very much indeed, Terry. I'm Paola Viscardi. Details on the website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. When you're there, you'll see the cover of Aina Nilauna's latest book. It's called Wonders of the Wild, illustrated by Brian Fitzgerald. Aina, I have lost count of how many books you have produced. Have you any idea yourself? (laughs) 
Oh, I think it's about eight. I've nearly lost count myself because they all have kind of the same names. But this one, Derek, is different because this is the first book I have produced and written for children. So it's a big yellow book, quite different to all the other ones. So it'll be just perfect for me and my niece, Avian, which I'll be delighted to give her a copy of when I get my hands on it. But before we get into the book, Aina, I suppose it's important to tell us a little bit about your childhood and your encounters with nature. Well, my childhood growing up with nature was the same as everybody else's in the 1950s. You were sent outside to play and told not to come in until it was either supper time or you were bleeding one or the other. And as you didn't ever want to go to bed, you never came in until you were called. And we climbed trees and we knew where the birds' nests were and we went to the river and we poked for fish and we looked at the frogs. And so we knew all of the things that were in County Louth around where we lived. And then, of course, being the smart arse I always was, even then, I used to read things. I used used to read books and I was always amazed that in the books they said things like squirrels hibernated because I read loads of Enid Blyton and the squirrels didn't hibernate. The frogs used to hibernate at the bottom of the ponds and then they came back in spring and they hadn't drowned and there was never any explanations for the things that I could see. I could see things happening on the one hand and I could find nothing about them in the books or I could find the wrong things. So I decided as things have not improved in the last 50 years that I would write a book on the things that we were misinformed about and I am setting the record right. So it's a collection of things that have always irritated me that people never know or didn't know this or didn't know that. So it's not a complete book on wildlife for anybody. It's a complete book on things that we mightn't have realised were the way they were and that's coming probably from my childhood when I observed these things myself. Frogs do hibernate any but squirrels don't. Surely Enid Blyton knew that or did she when she was writing about them? Ah, yeah, because see, Enid Blyton wrote a storybook. She wrote storybooks in the 1940s. And, of course, she had... I mean, that's fair enough. She had animals speaking and talking and doing things. I mean, everybody does that. Don Conroy does it. That's not the problem. But she had them doing the wrong things. She had squirrels gathering nuts and then going asleep for the winter. And then she had silly squirrels who couldn't find the nuts. And then people mistook what she was saying in the books as, as, as true and real. And as a consequence, then, they, they can't believe that things like bats aren't blind, they won't fly into your hair. I mean, these were all in, in stories and in, in, in ghoulish things, things that were written as, as fiction. And as I've always felt to this day, if they're doing fiction for kids, fine, but the fiction should be right. And Don Conroy, to be fair to him, when he has his snakes and his things all talking to you, and they're all doing the things that snakes and things should actually do in real life. And that's the way it should be, because if you're told the wrong things before you're two, you can't unknow them. And I find this amazing to this day that grown-up people still think that squirrels hibernate and other things like that. Like bats are blind, which of course they're not. So there's no fiction in here at all, Aina. Oh, no, there's no fiction in this at all. This is fact. You open each page, there's no animals talking to you or nothing. I'm saying, did you know that, or whatever, you know, how, how things happen? Did you know that spiders have all their legs on their heads? And people can't believe that this is the case, but when you draw the one bit and the other bit and put on the legs, they're all on their heads. Getting them to observe stuff. When birds leave their nests, they don't go back every evening with Mammy and Daddy and all get in for cuddles. Once they leave the nest, they're gone. So these are the things I'm saying in the book. So I just pick a different one and I have some interesting things like that rabbits eat their own poo, for example, or the things that glow in the dark in the sea that you might see at night glowing eerily what's going on there, or how flies actually manage to eat your dinner, what they do to it, the unspeakable behaviour of those. So it's all the things that, you know, I would have loved to, but a book I would have loved to have had as a kid. This is what I've written. Well, you have us intrigued now. So tell us, how do flies eat our dinner? <laughs> well... First of all, they have their taste buds on their feet. So that's why flies walk. I mean, if I had wings, I'd never walk anywhere. But the flies do walk because they're tasting. So they're walking on your hamburger, maybe. But they might have been walking on dog's poo a minute ago outside. So they're putting germs all over it. Anyway, they decide that it's lovely. So they want to eat it, but they have no teeth. So they regurgitate a very strong acid. They vomit on top of it, essentially. And this dilutes the, the, the bit of meat around where the thing happens. And then they stick out their tongue, which is like a straw. And they suck up vomit, melted meat, the lot and say yum yum and go off and do it again. So you can imagine the amount of germs that are on your dinner if a fly lands on it in the first instance. So I have great pictures, Brian Fitzgerald illustrated the book and he has great pictures of a real close up of a blue bottle and its tongue out and its big eyes and your meat. I mean it's great if you like that kind of thing Derek. 
Oh, I love it. I love it. Aina, it's an absolutely lovely book and congratulations on this. I think it's really wonderful that it's specifically aimed at children. But I can also see how it's going to be a wonderful book for adults to read to children. And I'm betting that the adults will get every bit as much out of it as the children will. I think that they've probably had a lifetime of these misconceptions and there's going to be a lot of surprised people out there learning about the, the spiders with the legs on their heads or how flies very graphically eat your dinner like that. Is that something you were bearing in mind as well, that this is something for the family? This is something that adults are going to be getting something out of too? Well, yes, indeed, having been that parent and that grandparent and of having had to read all sorts of terrible books for kids that were entirely boring, I thought, well, if I was reading this for a child, I, I really would enjoy it. If you're eight years or over, you're probably from third class on, you can read it yourself, maybe a bit younger if you're good at reading. But for children under that, the pictures are great and children love having stories read to them or books read to them because it's time with their parents or whoever's doing the reading. And whoever's reading it now, at least, will get something that they may not know Mind you, if they, if they have to read it all ten times every page, they'll know it forever. But I did have it in mind that it, it, it should be a bit of entertainment for the adults as well as for the children. I know that you've obviously spoken to a lot of children and a lot of adults over the years about wildlife. Has that helped to inform your correction of these misconceptions? Were there any ones that you found very, very annoying that you wanted to try and put right? One that really annoyed me that I really had to put it in was when I was in the school and I was talking about the cuckoo. And there was a young fellow in the class and nothing would do him, only that there was no such thing as a cuckoo. A cuckoo was a thing that was in his grandmother's clock and it wasn't real and there was no such thing as a real bird and there was no such thing as a cuckoo. And I felt I can't let that go. How can he say such a thing? How is he let off with this? Why is he thinking that there's no such thing as a cuckoo? So I have a whole um, section in this about the bird with no nest and about the cuckoo and where it goes and what it does. So if he ever is reading it, he'll know now that there is such a thing as a cuckoo indeed. And you can confirm that, Niall, I presume. I, I have <laughs> seen, cook- seen cookers with my own eyes. Yes, they're real. <laughs> Richard? Yeah, it's a funny thing about life. We begin with absorbing all kinds of fantasy ideas, but then we have to face reality after a bit. And you're beginning the process by which children have to face the reality of things. It is not all rosy and cuddly, as the fairy tales used to tell us. It's much more um, mixed. Something like, how far are you willing to go, Anna? You take, for instance, rabbits eating their own poo. Well, now, they do this in order to digest it better. In other words, putting it through their gut once doesn't take the nutrients out, but by putting it through the gut, but twice uh, it does take the nutrients out. Do you, you attempt an explanation for things or, or do you just leave the facts there? No, no, I do. I mean, I do explain why they eat their own poo. It isn't just that they've gone mad. I explain that it goes down, they're getting all the nourishment out of it. It's hard to get nourishment out of grass and it has to go through again to get it all out. The first poos in the burrow are soft and shiny and full of goodness still. And the next ones up at the top on the burrows outside, they're all dried out and they've got all the nourishment out of it. But I don't go on about bacteria breaking it down and I don't talk about rubens and cattle and methane and things, but I just say, they don't get all the good out of it and it has to go again. So I do explain, I don't just say it just happens and you're left with the opinion that rabbits are quite mad or why are they eating it or why is everybody else not eating their poo? I do explain it's because they're eating grass because an awful lot of people when I go to schools, what do rabbits eat? Carrots. As if the world was full of carrots and rabbits going around eating carrots. Whereas, I mean, yeah, if you have a pet rabbit, it'll eat a carrot. But that's it, Just, you know. So to disabuse them of this, that rabbits eat carrots and hold on to them with their hand and gobble them up. I mean, to get the real world and to what happens and to make it interesting is what I wanted to be doing. So that was what I was doing there with the rabbits. So I do explain it, Richard, yeah. You're not just giving facts, you're trying to engage the emotions. The important thing with children is to give them a, a love of the thing, give them an appetite for it. Uh, it seems to me very difficult to write for children. I would hate to try and do it, and you're very brave to take it on. Is it different writing for children than writing for adults? Oh yes, it is. I mean, I, this is, I've been supposed to be writing books for children maybe for the last five or six years and it was for O'Brien Press and Michael O'Brien, who's gone now, who's dead, but he was, he was very much encouraging me to do this and I time I'd send in something, it would be rudely dismissed, this wasn't good enough, this wasn't right, this didn't work. You have to have no adjectives, no explanations, no introductory paragraph, no nothing, just get straight in and get to the point and say what it is. No waffling, no adverbs, no adjectives, no in 1942 before thing, so and so research, such and such, none of that nonsense. What's the story, what's going on, tell me the bit and tell me why and on to the next thing. You know, 
know, the attention span, it has to be grasped at once. There's no trying to put in a preamble or anything like that. It's quite the opposite to other books where you're trying to get so many words. Here you're trying to cut back. Your word count is very low because you have to have your, your artists all over the page as well. So there's not that many words and you have to get the concept very succinctly. And if I can do it maybe interestingly or maybe make it funny or make it icky or whatever, that's where the talent apparently comes in. It's not just a, a section of the encyclopedia about that particular thing. You have to think of the child in front of you that you're actually telling this to. How would you tell it to a kid? You wouldn't be saying all of these um, adverbs and adjectives. If somebody asks you something, you just tell them the answer. And that's what I've been trying to do. And so far, anyway, they published it this time. So let's see how it goes. <laughs> and we have a copy of the said book to give away. To be in with a chance to win, all you have to do is answer the following question, which Aina will pose now. Go to our website and all the details you need are there on how you enter. So Aina, a question please. Yes, I have indeed a, a general question. What is the Irish name for a rabbit? And do you want to give us a clue? Yeah, well, the rabbits were brought here by the Normans and they had a Danish name for it because the Normans were originally Norsemen and they had the Danish name. So the Danish name for the rabbit and the Irish name for the rabbit sound the same, although they're spelled differently. So if you want to take part in the competition, you can email the answer to Mooney at rte.ie and in the subject bar, just put Aina's book competition. Let's say we give you until Thursday at 12pm to enter and then our broadcast coordinator Daniel will randomly select a winner from all the correct entries. Okay, details on the website rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Aina, I think we should give you a big bull of us for writing such a wonderful book, Aina. Congratulations! Richly deserved, Aina, richly deserved. Now I'm going to play a piece of music for you. Can you remember what it's from? I can give you a clue. It's from a movie. The year is 1994. Stars a big Hollywood actor, Tom Hanks. Any ideas? It's a movie that made me cry, I won't lie. In fact, one of my favourite movies of all time, Forrest Gump. A guy who believed that anything was possible. Indeed, for him, it was possible, even if he was a bit like Walter Mitty and Daydreaming a bit. But a beautiful movie. And the soundtrack is just wonderful. must watch it again. Anyway, where am I going with this? Well, the name of this particular piece of music is The Feather Theme. It's the opening scene of the movie when you see this white feather gently floating all the way down from the sky and it eventually lands on Forrest's foot. He's sitting on a park bench and he's talking to people, telling them about his life when he's going to find Jenny. Do you remember? <laughs> How could you forget it? So, oh, anyway, it's wonderful. It just makes you feel sad and happy at the same time. We love talking about feathers on this programme. We love talking about birds. We do it quite a lot on Mooney Goes Wild. And when we get the chance, we also like to talk about their close genetic relatives, the dinosaurs, if you're paying attention. To the top of the programme, you would have heard Richard Collins say just that about dinosaurs and birds and feathers. Anyway, paleontologists at University College Cork, have made a discovery that reveals new similarities between birds and dinosaurs. And it also sheds new light on the evolution of feathers. Joining us now from UCC is Dr Tiffany Slater, a paleontologist at the School of Biological Earth and Environmental Science and lead author on this exciting paper. Hello Tiffany, how are you? Great, I'm good, Derek. How are you? Well, we're great and we're delighted to be speaking with you today. So remind our listeners about the branch of science a paleontologist is an expert in. Yes, absolutely. So uh, paleontology is interested in the study of ancient life. So this can take on loads of different forms. It could be even evidence of past life. So uh, the traces and the tracks that animals leave behind. Uh, also down to fossilized microbes and uh, of course dinosaurs. So are there many paleontologists at UCC? 
Actually, there are. Our group is getting much bigger. And I think at the moment, there is at least 15 of us. So yes, it's a very exciting place to work. Now, I must give a special shout out to my nephew, Sean, because he's only 15. He may even be 16 now, but he can name every dinosaur that ever walked on planet Earth. Backwards, forwards, upside downwards, inside outwards. He just knows it all. And if you ask him, how do you know all that kind of stuff? He says, books, because he (laughs) devours these books about dinosaurs. But tell me about your work now, and you're looking specifically at feathers. Yes, absolutely. So I, unfortunately, I do not know all the names of the dinosaur. He's he's got me beat on that one. (laughs) But um, I am what we call a taphonomist. So taphonomists are interested in how the processes of fossilization impact the fossil record. Fossilization can alter the types of information that the fossil record preserves. So I try to always look at fossils through this lens. You know, what's their history? What have they been through? And how are they limited in what they can tell us because of what they've gone through? But in that vein, I, for the past six years, I've been studying fossil feathers. So uh, this is Normally, the fossil record preserves bones and fragments of shelly bits, and that's the stuff that we're most familiar with. But the fossil record can also preserve organics, so soft tissues uh, like skin and feathers and hair. So those are the bits that I'm particularly interested in. And what have you gleaned? Mm, From our recent work, we have found that the chemistry, the the proteins that make up feathers, that the chemical composition of feathers is much more ancient than we previously thought. So we were able to find evidence of the same proteins that make up modern feathers in 125 million year old feathered dinosaurs. Richard. Now feathers are are very beneficial in that they can provide you with camouflage or as as you say, they can provide you with colors that will attract a mate or whatever. But why go for feathers? Why not go for fur? If you take the mammals, mammals went for fur, we don't have feathers. What prompted uh, dinosaurs to go for the feathers and not to go in the direction of fur or rather why did we go for fur because we come along much later why do mammals come for fur what's wrong with feathers that fur takes over we are uh, warm bodied so we're able to regulate our own internal body temperature but the earliest reptiles were not able to do that and, and reptiles today are not able to do that so it is very possible that feathers were more advantageous than hair because they had a larger surface area and were maybe able to trap more air underneath it. So um, if you think about your hair when you get cold and you look at your arms and you start to see these little uh, little chicken chicken bumps, um, and so that's because your, your hair is then raising and that's to trap air against your skin to help keep you warm. So feathers, as you can imagine, with a larger surface area, they would trap more air and keep the animal even warmer. So that could be really important when you're a reptile and and you can't generate your own body heat so uh, it's it's very possible that that's why reptiles didn't evolve hair Tiffany this is Niall here um, I have a great interest in birds and uh, in today's world, birds are the only animals that currently have feathers. They're exclusive to birds. All of this work that's been done by paleontologists like yourself in recent years has been showing more and more the connection between birds and dinosaurs. To the extent that I think we can be confident to say that dinosaurs didn't really go extinct. Uh, A great many of the species did, um, but what happened was that they gradually became birds to the point that we can't even tell the difference between the two. There's no clear dividing line between birds and dinosaurs. But what I think is really fascinating about this research too is that I believe these protein structures have also been found in, in the remains of another group of animals, the pterosaurs, those flying reptiles that people would certainly have seen in children's books and so on, um, which weren't dinosaurs. They're a different, uh, different group. They diverged a long, long time ago. And um, if they also had feathers, does that suggest then that the ability to produce these proteins must have evolved way back, even before the dinosaurs? Yeah, this is key. And this is, this is such an exciting area of our research right now. So the, the fact that feathers were also in pterosaurs. So we have evidence of pterosaurs having very simple feathers. So uh, it would have looked superficially more like hair, but we also have evidence that these pterosaurs had branched feathers. And now 
although the pterosaurs that we've seen this in are 110 to 125 million years old, the fact that they're in pterosaurs means that feathers have a much more ancient history than we even have evidence for. So the dinosaurs and the pterosaurs would have had a common ancestor roughly around 250 million years ago. So this means that feathers were around 250 million years ago. Uh, now we haven't found those feathers themselves yet, but it's definitely uh, something that we're, we're definitely looking for. Think that answers your question. <laughs> it, it does. Thank you very much. And it leads on to another, a further one because pterosaurs famously could fly. Um, the birds, most birds today can fly. They're obviously some flightless species, but they uh, evolved from flying ancestors. And feathers are fundamental to their abilities to fly. The wings of pterosaurs, though, were quite different. In, in a, at least in a rudimentary sense, they were um, quite like the wings of bats, big fl- flaps of skin that were extending between the digits that they would fly with. So were they in any way, do we know, using those feathers as a fundamental part of their flying ability? or was it perhaps just for insulation or perhaps even for display purposes? We see so many courtship displays using feathers in birds today. Was it the same maybe for the pterosaurs and the dinosaurs? It's possible. So we do know that the feathers in pterosaurs did have pigments. So, uh, you know, this is an area of research that's increasingly evolving. But we don't have any evidence that those feathers would have acted in flight. So, as you say, it's very possible that they were acting in signaling and for warmth. Um, But we don't have very much evidence of the proteins that made up pterosaur feathers. So uh, that's an exciting area and we, we would like to, to understand better if they were chemically similar to the dinosaur feathers. You said there that we know that some of these feathers at least had pigments in them, had coloration. How can we tell that? Oh, So we can tell using several different methods. So we can look at these tiny samples of these fossils under what's called a scanning electron microscope. And that allows us to see things at a micron scale. So, you know, things that you can't see with your naked eye at all. And when we put these samples under the microscope, we can see evidence of these pigments because the pigments themselves, the molecules are stored in organelles called melanosomes. And these melanosomes typically have a shape that's spherical or kind of sausage-shaped. That's one way that we can see evidence of these pigments. And another way is that we can detect their molecules directly. So we're able to chemically analyze these samples and find evidence of these melanin molecules in the fossils. In modern birds, although pigment plays a huge role in in the coloration of their feathers, there are other things that work there too. Uh, Blues and and many of the greens in bird feathers, for example, aren't produced by pigment, or not by pigment alone, but also by these microstructures in the surface of the feathers that uh, reflect light light at, at different wavelengths. Is that something that's preserved in the fossil record from dinosaurs and pterosaurs as well, or is that something that doesn't survive this, this, this process? Well, a lot of them, unfortunately, do not survive the process, which is why I'm so interested in you know, how fossilization occurs and how it can determine what kind of information it preserves. So these things like uh, carotenoids that can give uh, blue and green coloration, we have very little evidence for these in the fossil record. And especially at a molecular level. So we have evidence of carotenoids, but it comes from them being mineralized. So they've the, basically the structure that the carotenoids are, they've been replaced by different minerals. And we can see evidence of that under microscopes. But there are other forms of coloration that are more difficult to, even more difficult to find in the fossil record. So when you look at a feather, if you have an iridescent feather that gives you different colors when you turn it. What's making some of that iridescence is the melanin pigments, but it's also the fact that there's layers of keratin proteins that make up feathers and they trap a layer of air between them. And it's actually, it's the differences in the way that light interacts with the pigments, melanin, and also the air that's trapped in between these proteins. And then the proteins themselves. So this is what we call structural color. And that's very difficult to find in the fossil record because, you know, these fossils are get compacted and buried in uh, under meters of sediment. 
feathers really are the most amazing structures. Uh, they have these wonderful colours. They're so supremely strong, but also incredibly light. They're wonderful for insulation. They uh, allow birds to fly. I think they're absolutely incredible. Uh, I think it would take a long time before the top engineers and scientists today could actually design such a perfect material. Do we know with the dinosaurs that have feathers, when did flight actually start to develop in them? And were there non-flying birds around at the same time as flying dinosaurs? I know that some dinosaurs had four wings rather than two that birds have today. Are we finding more about this? We are. It's, it's like anything. There's, there was this uh, big kind of gray area. So you would have had dinosaurs that were capable of gliding. So, you know, there's dinosaurs that were capable of active, powered flight, and then dinosaurs that were a little less capable of getting themselves off the ground. And instead, they were capable of using their, their wings and the feathers to glide from one tree to another tree. So there is this spectrum of flight that we see across the fossil record. Um, now, we do know that uh, they're very early early birds uh, as, as long ago as 125 million years ago, we had birds like Confucius Ornus. And these birds were very similar to modern day birds. They were capable of powered flight. And uh, absolutely, we're, we're still finding out more and more that uh, about active powered flight. I always thought that Archaeopteryx was the first flying dinosaur. Am I wrong? Well, so Archaeopteryx is very, very similar to modern birds. In fact, it can basically be considered a modern bird. It's remarkably similar to modern birds. We saw it in the museum in Berlin, the Natural History Museum, myself and Richard. Aina. Yes, indeed. I've been listening with great fascination to all you have been saying. I'm, I'm interested in, in, in the um, design of the ancient feathers. I mean, it used to be thought that the ancient feathers were made up of proteins like we have in our hair, those kind of soft proteins, and that they evolved over the millions and millions of years to become stronger proteins that would support flight so that the, the flight feathers in birds today have proteins that were different to the ones millions of years ago. But you knock that on the head by fossilising the proteins in modern day feathers. Tell me more, how did you manage to fossilise something in a few hours that took millions of years to happen? What's going on there? Yeah, so fossilisation, it's such a complex process, uh, but we do need to understand it in order to interpret the fossil record. So what we do is we simulate fossilisation. We don't necessarily replicate fossilization, but we simulate it in a lab on a time scale that us humans can do. We're able to ramp up these temperatures that fossils would experience during burial and see these chemical processes that are that are happening on million, hundreds of millions of years on a time scale of a couple of hours to a day. So this allows us to study the processes a lot more easily. So what I did was use feathers from modern birds and cook them to temperatures that are equivalent to what they would experience over millions of years during fossilization and then study what's left and what was left was very interesting so the feathers of modern birds as you say they are composed of proteins that are very strong and we call these corneous beta proteins so they have this beta sheet structures proteins have uh, uh, many different types of structures and beta sheets are one of them so these corneous beta proteins are very strong and then what we see when they're heated is that these beta sheets, these corneous beta proteins, they unravel and then they reform alpha helices. So alpha helices are a different type of protein structure and that is the similar protein structure that we see in the proteins in our hair, so keratins. And it's a much softer, less robust protein. So this was very interesting because it said that when we're finding evidence of alpha helix proteins like keratin in the fossil record, it's very likely that these could have been originally beta sheet proteins like corneous beta proteins and that they're just degrading over hundreds of millions of years to become this alpha helix keratin lookalike protein. So it's very important to take into consideration the process of fossilization and how it can alter what the fossil record tells us. Tiffany, I have to say my mind is blown by the fact that you can fossilise something within a few hours. I thought Jurassic Park was all make-believe, but hey, it's only around the corner from what I can see. It's only around the corner. Anyway, Tiffany, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. And that's pretty much all we have time for tonight. Don't forget, 
to visit our website. And when you do, you can have a listen back to the wonderful documentary we made, which featured Eric Dempsey, and it was all about feathers. And it'll give you a greater understanding and appreciation for these delicate structures. My thanks to Aina Neilauna, to Richard Collins, Terry Flanagan and Niall Hatch. Our broadcast coordinator is Daniel Keating, and our researcher is Michelle Brown. We'll do it all again next week. Until then, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Bye.